Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, or before we read the passage, that Hebrews is a book that has very rich theology in terms of Christ. We mentioned last time about how Hebrews is basically the sufficiency of Christ. Just in a general sentence, if you want to know what that means, uh, we covered part of that in terms of Christ's priesthood. Now we're dealing more with the application of Christ's priesthood. It's a call for self-evaluation, honestly, is what Hebrews is inviting us to do. That we understand the sufficiency of Christ. Now it's the author sort of turning to us and saying, okay, so what does that mean to you? Is Christ really sufficient for you? It's a pretty pointed rabbinic teaching in, in, in how he does this, that it's it's rather fearful uh, to think about this level of apostasy he's speaking of, and it is intended to, to shock us, to make us think, and to evaluate our lives. And so if we think about the reality of Christ being a sufficient priest, and, and we, we know that he's in the order of Melchizedek, as we learned last time, and we learned the, the profound nature of that, that he's from eternity, has no beginning, has no ends, he's a priest, king, uh, all those uh, things that are tied to it. But now it's that question of, why is Christ's priestly work so sufficient? Why, well, what happens if we say, well, Christ is good for you, but I, I'm at a mature place in my Christian life where I want a more tangible religion. Uh, Christ was great at one point, but now I want a more tangible religion. What happens with that? Is that a, a dangerous mindset? And that's basically what the author of Hebrews is addressing. There's actually three sections here, um, and it's difficult to end at verse 8 because that becomes rather depressing. And I'd argue that this whole section goes through 6 verse 12. And so I was going to do verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6 as its own section, but I decided to cover that in more summary format. I figured you didn't want to hear an hour sermon this morning, uh, so you're welcome. Uh, going on then, looking at these two points then, I want to look at first warning against malnourishment and warning against falling away. Uh, and then we'll take up verses 9 through 12 uh, as we consider this warning of falling away. And so when you look at verses 11 through 14, uh, where the author of Hebrews is basically summarizing the problem that there's a warning against malnourishment. So there's a couple of things we, we need to remember in terms of this malnourishment. It's important uh, to understand this in the context of the book. I remember we heard of Hebrews 3 to 4, we have Israel in the wilderness experience. Uh, so Israel is one who continually tests the Lord. The Lord provides them water, the Lord provides them food, and yet they still want the Lord to prove himself, not only in the provision of water and food, uh, but even in the magnificent Exodus event, that's not sufficient for them. So the author of Hebrews says, hey, pay attention. They didn't enter the fullness of rest. 
The fullness of rest is still out there. They fell in the wilderness. And so we saw our Christian experience as a wilderness time. Uh, the wilderness is a time of testing. It's a time of movement. Uh, it's not necessarily saying every moment is going to be miserable or every moment is going to be difficult. But what it means is that we have to be conscious that this is not our fundamental home. Yes, we're called to leave it better than, what, than how we found it. I mean, that's part of our Christian calling. Uh, but nevertheless, we're to be conscious that we are sojourning to the fullness of Mount Zion. And so our, our orientation, our focus, our, our view is always to the outcome of the goal of Mount Zion. And so the author of Hebrews has set up that scenario, a warning, a precedent. Israel tested God. Now he's going on and, and laying out a problem in this church. And the problem is, as he's already laid out, Christ is from the Father. Christ is the same character of God, same glory as God. Christ is a priest from his people, order of Melchizedek, all these things that we have heard. He's saying now there's a problem, that you become dull of hearing. And when we hear this, we, we say, okay, what, what does this dullness mean? What, what, what's the problem here? Because when, when he lays this out, it sounds bad. And, and, and the thing about Hebrews is something that should concern us. I think as Christians, uh, some may say Reformed are, are more prone to this. I don't know if that's necessarily true. But Christians in general, we can think, I got my doctrine straight. As I have my doctrine straight, I'm in. I'm good. I got it all sorted out. But what he's talking about here is that it's the people who claim that they have their doctrine straight, but they're turning away from the truth. You know, normally we think of apostasy. It's why I wanted to read uh, from Galatians. We think about apostasy, we, we think about things like Corinth. You know, engaging in just gross, deviant immorality and saying, I want this sin and I'm going to pursue this sin and this is where I find life. That, that's, that is a form of apostasy, so I don't want you to stand before Christ on the day of judgment and say, well, my pastor said it's okay for me to pursue that kind of sin. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's one form of apostasy. The other form of apostasy Hebrews is laying out here. It's a pharisaical apostasy. I got my doctrine straight, I know what I believe, but it's not really part of who I am. And that's what Hebrews is dealing with. He's saying, listen, it's not about gross immorality. In fact, if, if you looked at most of these people in this church, they probably live pretty moral lives outwardly, and that's, that's commendable. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'd rather live in a society that is outwardly moral uh, than outwardly and blatantly immoral. I mean, that's just the reality of it. It's a lot easier to live that sort of way and to live out your faith. But the fundamental problem is they're not truly living out their faith. They're doing this in their outward actions. And so this is a dangerous slide because you can look and you say, well, I'm not like those immoral people over there who engage in all sorts of form of debauchery. I know my doctrine. I, I got it straight. I, I know what I believe. And Hebrews is saying, but it's not part of who you are. And so this dullness of hearing be becomes a very significant point here. Because this dullness of hearing is not that someone is, is just dumb 
or lacks the intellectual capability to understand the gospel. That, that's not what it means. It means a laziness. It means that, that no longer uh, this church wants to live out the gospel. It, it no longer wants to think about what is right and wrong in terms of my life before Christ. Well, what is inconsistent with the gospel in my life? And, and how do I live it out more consistently? And being willing to ask that question. And so the reason I wanted to go all the way through 6 verse 12 is you have the dullness of hearing in 5 verse 11. 6 verse 12, the same word is translated sluggish. And so that's what I mean by, by this laziness. It's no longer wanting to think Christ is my Lord, he's my priest. How do I live more consistently before the face of my priest? That's uh, the problem that's going on here. But this dullness of hearing, we may say, okay, well, uh, maybe, maybe the gospel is just not exciting anymore. Maybe it's just the way it's being preached is no longer exciting. That, that's not the problem. Because this hearing is something that goes back to 4 verse 2 with Israel in the wilderness. There are those who heard the message, but they were not united to the message by faith. And so hearing, in this sense, is, is an Old Testament sense that hearing is doing. It's not just, I, I hear this message, I can regurgitate it, but it's, I actually want to live this out. And he goes on to point out the irony of this. It's not just that they're sluggish in their hearing, but that they're those who do not live out the oracles, as we find in verse 12, the oracles of God. Now, the oracles, we find this language used by Stephen in Acts 7, verse 38, where he identifies the oracles with the words of Moses. So this is important. Here you have a church that says, we want to live by the Old Testament tangible religion. We want to live by the prophets. Moses is our man. And Hebrews is saying, but you're not even living by Moses. You're, you're, you're dull of hearing even the words of Moses. You're not hearing the substance of what he prophesied. That Christ is the one who fulfills this reality. And so we're, we're understanding that tweaking the doctrine of Christ or, or saying that Christ's sufficiency is really not that important becomes a radical problem. We can fall into our own confidence. We can fall into our own self-righteousness. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're far more holy than we really are. We need Christ. And so he points out the problem. He's saying, listen, you, you people who have grown up in the church, uh, you, you should have known enough that you can actually take other Christians under your wing and start mentoring them, basically, and teach them uh, about good and evil and right and wrong in terms of the kingdom and truly knowing what is right and wrong. But he said, as a result, you can only have milk, not solid food. So again, this is playing on it, argue that whole Exodus motif, uh, that, that they should want the substance of Christ, they should want the substance of God, but they're content not to. And he's saying, here's a problem, you're, you're basically babies in the faith, even though you think you're mature. So this is something else, when you take a moment of self-reflection, you think, so what is immature in my life? What, what's not consistent with the Lord? This is the invitation here. Uh, obviously, we all struggle with this. Uh, we all need to have more humility before the Lord. That's the challenge here. That's the invitation. 
You know, what needs to be brought before Christ's altar and broken and ripped out of our lives that's distracting us from our God? That's the invitation. And so when, when he goes on, he talks about why this is a fundamental problem. That in verse 14, he speaks of the powers of discernment. So this means truly discerning what's right and truly discerning what's wrong. Uh, Christ gives a, an analogy of this when he rebukes the Pharisees. And he says, you strain out the gnat, but you swallow the camel. In other words, you worry about all these little details of the law that are kind of easy to follow. You know, hand washings and things like that. And, and then you can think you're pretty righteous because I do these little things. As I do these little things, I'm real pious before the Lord. Christ's pointing out, but you don't really want to live your life before the Lord. You, you don't really want to take your heart, flay it open before God and, and say, what, what needs to be ripped out of, of this darkness? What, what's in here that's inconsistent with your will? What truly is pleasing unto you and what truly is not pleasing unto you in my own life? And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Come before your priest and ask your priest to give you this wisdom. So you know the substance of the faith as to what is pleasing unto God, what is consistent with his will, and what is not consistent with his will. And he's going to go on to give some examples. So we have this, this general reminder of how there's this malnourishment. They're, they're not getting into the substance of the gospel. They're dull of hearing. They're not really wanting the word of God. They're not getting into the depths and the implications of the oracles of even Moses. So now... What's really going on here? Well, this is where we have that warning against falling away. As I mentioned, basically you're looking at verses 1 through 8, 9 through 12 as its own section, uh, but we're just putting that all together uh, for the sake of time. And again, 5 verse 11, dull in hearing, uh, 6 verse 12, sluggish. So we're seeing this as one intended section, which I think is an important thing to keep in mind, as we'll see in a moment. But he goes through and he lists these six things that he notes in the church. Dead works towards God. So it's, it's not really doing things out of faith and the confidence of the new life. Uh, and so they have these dead works. They're called to exercise faith in God. They have these cleansing rites. They continue with the laying on of hands. They need instruction concerning the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. So we say, okay, well... Well, what's going on in this church then with these six things that we list? Well, first, the dead works in the faith, because you can argue some of these go together as pairs. This is something that characterizes the Christian life continually. So this is repentance and faith. And so repentance would be like Paul saying, dying to the old man, putting things to death. Uh, this is a sin that we struggle with that needs to be put to death. And so this is turning away from it. That's what repentance means. Turning away from something. But it's not just turning away from sin, because that could put you in a tailspin. You can start being confident in the flesh and continually just spinning and spinning and spinning and not going anywhere. So it's turning from sin and turning unto God. So you think of repentance and faith, that's how this functions. We're putting to death things, and then we're turning more unto our Lord. Now, this is where it's important to understand the context. Who's our Melchizedekian priest? Because we can say, oh, well, God doesn't know what I've done, or God doesn't know what I think, 
or, or God can't bear to know uh, the things I struggle with because he's so holy. Well, then you're denying the Melchizedekian priest. That's what Hebrews has laid out. He can sympathize with it. He's not going to shame you. He wants you to come before his throne authentically, flaying your heart open, saying, I struggle with this. I want this. I don't know why I want this. What's going on within me? Work on me, O Lord. This is the invitation and part of this repentance and faith. It's understanding where, we, where we're triggered, avoiding those things. And this is a reminder. Here in this particular church, they're trying to turn back to their own flesh, to their own confidence in terms of a tangible religion and not seeing the sufficiency of Christ. Not really believing that Christ has redeemed them. Which leads to the other problems. And so it's, it's that call to continually turn to your Melchizedekian priest. Put to death sin because you want to please your priest. Uh, avoid those things that trigger you because you understand these things lead to greater issues um, that you don't want to live in. And you want to please your Lord. So that's a reminder there. Going on, this cleansing rites or these washings. Uh, literally translated, this means baptisms. Uh, so some people maybe tend to say there's a series of baptisms going on. What it seems uh, as we go on in Hebrews, Hebrews 9 verse 10, this is repeated again uh, where he mentions the inferiority of the Jewish tradition with ceremonial washings. So this is very much like Christ interacting with the Pharisees, you know, going through the ceremonial washing of trying to take away uh, their sin, at least visibly, but not seeing that they need Christ. And so it, it seems that this church is continuing with these ceremonial washings, trying to cleanse themselves. The laying on of hands. Uh, this is something we see in the book of Acts, uh, where when somebody lays hands on an individual, that the Spirit moves and, and then they have the gift of the Spirit. So it seems that this is a, a thing where they're trying to manipulate the will of God or the power of God, at least in their own mindset. Of course, we can't manipulate God. He's God. We're, we're humans. Uh, but nevertheless, it's that mindset of I put my hands on people, they'll get this extra dose of God's grace, and, and I can do this, rather than seeing it as symbolic of ordination or someone being set apart for a particular task as we continue with the laying on of hands. This is continually laying on of hands, uh, trusting in, in this practice to make the Spirit work. The resurrection. It's not really clear entirely what this church is struggling. I mean, we don't have 1 Corinthians 15, where you certainly get an insight into the struggle of the church of Corinth. But we do have some implications. Hebrews 2 verse 9, Christ takes death for everyone. 2 verse 14, uh, takes on the flesh that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. 2 verse 15, uh, fear of death. They were subject to lifelong slavery. So talking about the human problem. 5 verse 7, saved him from death and he was heard. So the repetition of this implies that this church is struggling with the sufficiency of Christ's resurrection. Is Christ raised as priest really for me? And Hebrews is making the case, yes. As you take hold of Christ by faith, he is raised for you. You have overcome death in Christ Jesus as the true priest. That's where you proceed with your hope. And so Paul, or I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews 
is saying that there's a fundamental problem in that this church is not understanding these basics of the faith. And they need to continue to learn these things as it gets worse with the final judgment. The implication here is that they probably think, as some people in the Jewish tradition thought, that basically it's a spreadsheet theology. You stand before God, he takes your good works, takes your bad works, see if they cancel each other out, and if you're faithful enough, you enter into his kingdom. And the apostle Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is pointing out the fundamental problem. This is not how the final judgment works. We go through our judgment in Christ. That's how we do this. The great Melchizedekian priest. And so the assurance of this that the author of Hebrews has as we go on through 4 verse 6 is that he's assured that they'll listen. Uh, he hopes that they'll listen, assures that as they hear these things, they'll evaluate their lives. Because he points out a fundamental problem as an alternative if they don't. And these things that, that he points out are not necessarily happy things, as this is leading to apostasy. Now, we got to look at verses 4 through 6 and kind of walk through this a little bit with some detail because we can take these, these words in the English and make them mean more than what they really mean. And so what, what is going on here? Well, enlightened, as he says, one who has been enlightened, you know, for those who have been enlightened, this isn't necessarily regeneration. This is merely having an insight to seeing the gospel. Uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul, which is probably why I keep making the slip of the Apostle Paul, but this section does parallel a lot of Paul's theology. But going on here, where the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that the world is being blinded. And so it's not enlightened. It doesn't see uh, the gospel. In 10, verse 33, saw the light, endured suffering. So this is dealing with individuals just objectively noting how they have lived their life. And so it's just merely saying that by the fruits of what he has seen, you know, we, we see this in Paul's theology, Aaron's benediction, for instance, you give a, a statement about the whole community. You're coming to church every week, I assume you believe the gospel. I, I assume this is something that's part of you. And so in that sense, I assume you're enlightened. And so it's a human being making a value statement about the congregation. So he's giving this warning. If, if you've been part of the congregation, you turn away, there's consequences. Going on, tasted the goodness. This can just be the personal involvement. Hear the gospel. Partake of the sacrament. Uh, re receive the, the love and expression of the church, the goodness of the saints, the mercy of the saints, etc. And so again, this is just a general value statement. Going on, uh, shared partakers in the heavenly gifts. Uh, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, uses this language in another place in 3 verse 1, where you share in the church, you share in the heavenly calling. And so it's the same sort of mindset that as you come to the church, we're part of a community. We think of Israel in the wilderness, right? I mean, this is a big thing for Hebrews where he really plays on this. So you have the community called out of Egypt together, and then some die and some fall, 
in the wilderness. They tasted the goodness of God. They, they tasted the redemption. They saw the heavenly power with their own eyes, but yet they never really embraced it. It wasn't really part of them, is what Hebrews is reminding us. Uh, going on then, uh, tasted the goodness in verse 5 explicitly that once again it's just experiencing tasting firsthand the power of God emphasizing this so then what's the warning that he gives so he's giving this the statement of here's what I see here's what you've been part of this is what you've experienced in the church of Christ we can't abstract the church from the heavenly reality uh, they work together we're joined to the same Lord the same priest but going on, a commentator notes that if you want to simply state the problem, it's abandoning a relationship. That they are those who have tasted these things. They've seen the goodness. But now as they fall away, as they abandon the instruction, as they abandon the substance of the oracles of Moses, he's saying it's a very terrible place to be. It's not experiencing the goodness of God. It's like those who have died in the wilderness. That's the picture that he's giving to the church. If we say, well, why does the gospel matter? Why do I need to embrace the gospel? Why do I need to live in light of Christ? Why do I need to live as a living sacrifice? The author of Hebrews is sort of turning and saying, think about the dead corpses in the wilderness. You don't turn to Christ. That's where you are. You taste the goodness but you don't embrace the substance, that's where you are. This is a sober, serious call for us to examine ourselves. I mean, that's, that's really what it is, and that's how I take it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, think about where you stand in the gospel of Christ. What does it really mean? And he's saying then the, the hypothetical warning and, and the outcome is that they cannot be restored again. Now, He's not necessarily saying, or he may be implying that they've committed an unpardonable sin, but we need to understand explicitly what's happened here. This is not an ignorant individual who is just, say, a comedian making a joke about Christianity, but doesn't really know what Christians believe. Just kind of knows some things about the doctrine. These are people that should be eating meat and are drinking milk. These are people that have been raised in the church. They know the doctrines of the church. And they say, you know what? Christ, he's not really the Messiah. He's something else. He's duped a lot of people. You're putting yourself in a very dangerous position there. And that's really what you believe. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't start dabbling with this stuff. Because this, this can put you in a bad place. I mean, it's not necessarily saying that these individuals who have turned away or are turning away are necessarily apostate. He's not necessarily saying that. Because I take this section as a hypothetical. And he's going to the absolute absurdity of what this position will lead them to. And I say that because as we go on, uh, we'll notice in verse 9 how he gives this exhortation that this is not you. But nevertheless, before he gives us encouragement, he draws a contrast between, um, be, between the, 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 the land, that the land that's good versus the land that's bad. So a land that's good receives rain, produces fruit. A farmer's happy with that land, right? 
But if there's land that, re that receives rain, you put fertilizer on it, you do everything you can to cultivate something, and all it does is produce thorns, that land's useless. It's not worth the effort. And so it's burned. And so the language there echoes that of what moves to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? A land that appears very fertile on the outside and very beautiful. That's why Lot went there. But at its core, at the substance of what the land was, it was absolutely grossly immoral. And it was burned and consumed up. So the author of Hebrews is putting this in the minds of the saints and saying, don't think just because Abraham's your father or just because you grew up in this tradition that you're safe. You have to embrace Christ. That's the call here. You fundamentally have to embrace Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is inviting us to see. Now, if we stop at verse 8 and say amen, that's pretty dreary, isn't it? I mean, you... You're kind of left with, wow, am I in the Melchizedekian priest or not? And this is where the author of Hebrews is basically taking the church, showing them the cliff in the depths of Sheol, the terror of what that points to, the absurdity of where their questioning of Christ as a valid Melchizedekian priest leads them. It leads to death and hell and turmoil. But now he puts his arm around us. This is where I love verse 9. And he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure that better things that belong to salvation. And so verse 9 is sort of where you let out a breath of fresh air. And you say, oh, we're not all apostate reprobates. There is hope. In fact, in terms of the Greek language and English, uh, word order becomes a little more fussy. Uh, and so... We have to put our words in order for a sentence to make sense. There may be some uh, things we can do in English to sort of trick things around. But in the Greek, word order is not fundamentally significant uh, uh, in, in the sense that, you know, you can have your object first. And anyway, I won't get into all the geekiness of it. But basically, word order can be played with. And what happens in the Greek language is a skilled writer will take uh, maybe the end of the sentence or the verb that should be second, like we do in English. So you have your subject, then you have your verb, grammar lessons free. And then in the Greek, you have your verb, but you can put that first. And the reason you would do that is to emphasize the reality of it. So if we look at this, and we put this in how it's, it's originally written, it says, Beloved, we feel sure, though we speak this way. In other words, he's saying, we are confident this is not you. And so he wants to emphasize, listen, I'm showing you the dark absurdity of where your questioning is leading you. Don't go there. You don't want to go down that road. But we're sure of this. We're sure of who you are, beloved. And that's what I love. He says, beloved, this church is questioning the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. And he still says, beloved. In other words, they are still the family of God. And he's saying, listen, I don't want you going down that road. I don't want you in Sheol. I don't want you in hell. I want you to understand and come back to the way of salvation, the way of life, the way of peace. That he wants them to understand that the good things they have done. Now, he's not saying that their works where he's contradicting himself are works that make them righteous. When he's talking about the works, he's saying, listen, we, we've noted the fruits of your faith. 
We, we've noted how you desire to live out the gospel. We, we've noted that the Spirit has been at work in the church, so continue to cultivate this. And then in verse 12, with that reminder again, as we started with 5 verse 11, the dole of hearing, that you may not be sluggish. In other words, lazy, docile, but that is you hear the gospel, you desire to live out the gospel. And so then he talks about and introduces the concept of Hebrews 11, of those who were patient, waiting upon the promises of God. The Spirit's present, they live their lives, we see the power of His redemptive mercy, and they orient their lives to Mount Zion. And so again, verse 12 is that call to say, listen, not everything in this life is going to work out exactly as we want it to work out. There's going to be struggles, there's going to be tests, we're going to taste the dust of the wilderness. We're going to be tempted to question whether or not Christ is a real Melchizedekian priest. Uh, we're going to question whether Christ is really sufficient. But he's saying persevere through this. Persevere in seeing that your Lord is sufficient. Don't be sluggish. Hear his words. Hear his scriptures. Continue to give yourself over to his spirit. And understand that as you turn from your sin and turn unto the Lord, as you embrace your great Melchizedekian priest and you continue to walk toward him through this wilderness time, you will not be disappointed. There's a precedent of those who have done it before you. Continue to emulate them as they heard the oracles of God. So when we began with that question, why is this one priest so important? What happens if we really don't embrace him? Well, the author of Hebrews lays out the absurdity that if we're not really going to embrace the fullness of who Christ is and attribute it to some sort of deception or some sort of um, other immorality or trickery, that, that we're running close to committing the unpardonable sin. Now, I, I don't think he's saying that this church necessarily did it. I do believe he's laying out the absurdity as to where this can potentially lead. But he's saying, be careful. Don't dabble with this question. In fact, he's saying, let's dabble with another question. And let's put this in a positive light. How can I be more patient in waiting upon the Lord? How can I continue to walk in light of this Melchizedekian priest? Where can I be more righteous in terms of wanting to honor him and what needs to be put to death within me. This isn't meant to discourage us. It's meant to continually encourage us to humble ourselves, to commune with our priest, to pray to him, to get into his word, to study what is right and wrong, as the author of Hebrews calls us to be mature and discerning what's truly substantially right versus what's not right, and truly understanding the substance of this so we're not a people who are busy, you know, uh, straining out the little gnat and swallowing a whole camel without really wrestling with how is this honoring unto my God? The Catechism does a wonderful job of laying out what a good work is in question answer 91. Those that proceed in confidence of faith done according to the law of God and not according to the traditions of men. Let us then desire to honor our Melchizedekian priest. Let his gospel continue to resonate within us more and more that we desire to live this out, emulating the great priest who has passed through hell 
and has emerged triumphant and let us continue to walk in the power of heaven, patiently waiting upon him, knowing that we will inherit the fullness of the promise in him. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.